quiver's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm an outdoor junkie through and through, hunts my middle name. My eyes are on the target, broadheads all fly true. Can't wait till I can get outside so I can fling a few. We're back. Welcome to the Trag Quest podcast. What's going on, Bob? Not much, buddy. Just uh, talk some serious hunting with uh, Brian Burkhart, man. Guy is an animal. So in my mind right now, I'm talking to you, but I'm dreaming of Alaska, willow brush, and giant bull moose. Yeah, man. I I just, just been drooling all over myself listening to Brian talk about these giant bull moose. Uh, Brian Burkhart. He's a lifetime Compton traditional bow hunter member. He's been bow hunting since he was 12 years old, and he is a man made of moose. Yeah, he's. Uh, we kind of w- ran down his his whole moose adventures. He's been doing it since I think '08, and uh, man, it just sounds like an sounds like the ultimate experience for sure. For uh, you know. I guess sheep hunting would be the ultimate experience, but for an affordable ultimate experience for guys like us, man, it's not out of reach. So that's what really, that's what really gets me going. I, I know you and I have talked, you know, about planning a moose trip and I've, I've talked, had these talks with my brother for shoot 20 years and it's always hard to give up elk season for us, you know, living in elk country and they rut at the same time and that's when the hunting's good up there. So but every time you you hear of a guy like this, it really gets you thinking. So, yeah, I feel I feel like it's tug of war. It's like bugling, screaming bulls, or hard grunting, brush raking bull moose in the northern country. I mean, it's it's tough. Yeah, it is. And and you know, like for me, that we and we talk about it in here is you know hunting where they're, you're not dealing with people is huge. And anymore, the elk woods are just the general hunts are getting getting crazy and then the the limited hunts are shoot getting harder to draw nevada's coming up i have 17 points and i was looking at my odds for some of those tags and granted these are once in a lifetime hunts but man even with 17 points my odds are in the single digit percentages which is crazy so uh i don't know man it's uh it's definitely appealing something you can go do every year so yeah, man, Nevada elk that 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 would be crazy. I would I would have a almost a hard time hunting elk myself and not wanting to just go with you and, and experience that. Well, I'm probably not going to draw the dang thing, so it could be another hundred yeah. years. <laughs> another hundred years. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, we're going to have to find our way to Alaska before we're uh, too old. But he's got he's hunting with uh, Monty Browning at 69 years old and still doing it. What an inspiration that is. I think you guys are, you know, really going to enjoy hearing the, these adventures. Heck yeah. yeah. And, uh, we also, we always forget to mention these cause we're always kind of in a hurry. We do these intros, but, uh, we got our bow giveaway going on right now. So Emery over at Byland podcast was gracious enough to, uh, give away his bow to somebody who wants to get into the stick bow life. So, if you leave him a review on iTunes and leave us a review on iTunes, we're going to take all those numbers and 
probably uh, have our buddy Andy, who's a little techier, put him back in the computer ninja thing he used or whatever and draw somebody's name. And we're going to be doing that. This one will probably air a week from the drawing. So uh, basically got one week left. So don't forget yeah, to well, do that and show Emery some love over there. He's a super solid dude and crazy yeah. backpacker. Yeah, if you haven't listened to Emery's uh, episode, it was awesome. There was a ton to take away from that. And, yeah, we're, once again, thanks, uh, Emery, for giving away your Bear Montana. Um, so, yeah, we good luck to you guys and tell a friend and uh, enjoy. Welcome to the Track Quest podcast, Brian Burkhart. Hey, Brian, how are you? Hey, doing great, guys. Uh, we're excited to have you on this morning. Um, why don't you just kind of give us a kind of an intro into Brian Burkhart and you know how you got started shooting the bow and arrow and whatnot? Yeah, sure. Um, I actually grew up with a uh, family of five boys, and uh, my dad was an avid bow hunter, still is actually, and um, you know he basically showed us the way, and he was a great mentor for us and a role model and. And I've been shooting a bow ever since I can remember and uh, been shooting traditional equipment for over 40 years. So it's just a passion of mine and uh, something that uh, I'd like to share. Very cool. So does your dad and brothers all shoot uh, longbows and recurves? Well, they all have. Uh, I've got a couple of brothers that are shooting compounds right now. and um, But, you know, for the most part, we've all shot traditional at one point in time. I'm a little unique relative to just sticking with traditional, you know, pretty much my entire life. And, um, you know, I just love the challenge of traditional archery and you know, it's all about getting close to, you know, for me and, uh, you just can't beat a simple stick and arrow. Totally. That's awesome. And so I imagine you grew up chasing whitetails and turkeys. Yeah, primarily whitetails in Michigan, and, you know, Michigan's pretty tough hunting for whitetails if you don't have private property, and we were just hunting public land and having a lot of fun and, uh, you know, shooting some deer, but uh, but nothing big, and uh, I actually now lease some property in southeast Ohio where the, where the whitetail hunting's a little better in terms of caliber of bucks, but, uh, yeah, it's just get, getting out there with a, with a stick and string and trying to get close to the critters is for me, what it's all about. Ah, oh, that's very cool. Um, I also see you're a uh, Compton Traditional Lifetime member. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I, you know, I've been a member of Compton from the beginning. It's a great organization. I go to the rendezvous every year and help out with the uh, with the kids shoot. You know, we take a bunch of kids around and uh, shoot 3D. And to me, it's a great organization that just focuses on the family and getting getting the next generation into traditional bow hunting. So, you know, basically I just got back from the, the Compton big game classic that was held in Pittsburgh, had a great time. And anytime you're around, you know, people that love traditional archery, that that's a crowd I really enjoy being around. So it's a great organization. And, um, I've I've been a life member for a number of years now and, um, and just can't say enough, you know, good about the organization. Yeah, that's super cool. Me and Bob are putting in some strong efforts towards making it out to Michigan uh, this summer. So 
hopefully we'll see you uh, there. I hope you, I hope you guys make it. Yeah. I mean, the, the shoot, the shooting is great. You know, you basically have a, a ton of vendors there. So, you know, it's a great time to just hang around people and purchase some new equipment and, and do some shooting. And, and I also actually camp there as well, right on the campgrounds of Berrien Springs. So it's just a, it's a great weekend. You get to hear some good speakers and um, it's, it's a great time. Yeah. We're really hoping that will work out for us. So uh, I'm sure like growing up with traditional archery and, you know, seeing, the likes of Fred Bear and these guys, you know, doing the big Alaska thing. I'm sure you were drawn to that. At what point did you really start thinking about Alaska? And um, when when was your first trip out there? And, you know, maybe kind of walk us through some of that. Yeah, you, you know, you bring up Fred Bear, and he was certainly an inspiration for me. I remember our family going up to northern Michigan just on vacation and every time we'd go up north, we would stop in Grayling at the Fred Bear Museum. And, you know, you're seeing all these mounts, you're seeing polar bear, you're seeing moose. And and I, I would say that was kind of the inspiration for me to really do some, you know, some traveling to Alaska and some of the more, uh, you know, tough hunts, if you will. But I actually started um, how I how Alaska came to be for me was uh, I was actually at my taxidermist picking up a whitetail, and I was in a studio. His name is Bob Nancaro in Frank Booth, Michigan. And I was looking at a picture of a moose he had killed in Alaska on a do-it-yourself hunt. And, um, you know, I was just staring at the picture, and he could tell I was just mesmerized by the moose. And he said, uh, have you ever thought about going moose hunting? And I looked at him, and I said, I would love to go moose hunting. <laughs> And uh, I just, you know, but trying to figure out all the logistics and getting a pilot and trying to figure out that out seemed a little insurmountable. And he said, well, if you really want to go to Alaska and hunt moose, I'll give you a name of a pilot, but you have to promise me you're only going to tell one other person, your hunting partner and no one else. I said, I promise. So he gave me a pilot's uh, number and made the connection and, um, and Bob Nancarol is a longtime you know, hunting partner of Monty Browning. And so we were basically hunting in the same general area as, as Bob and Monty. And uh, so that's how Alaska came to be for me. And that was in 2008. And I've been going every year since. And, uh, you know, I just, there's something about Alaska that's got in my blood. And every September, I just can't wait to be back up there. So, I'm going to go every year until I can't do it anymore. And uh, I just love being, you know, where those moose live and being up close and personal to those 1500 pound brutes. And that, that adventure sounds just mesmerizing, but at the same time for a guy like guys like me and Bob, who September represents screaming bull elk and uh, the elk woods, it's, it's kind of like uh, being torn in two different directions. Yeah, no, I totally understand that. It's uh, it's one of those things where I've got family members that are telling me, "Hey, you've done enough moose hunting. Why don't you try something else?" But, but you know, when I think about it and think about not being in Alaska hunting the moose, it just I I, I keep going back. So, you know, different guys have different animals that are their pure passion. But I would say for me, it's it's basically hunting the largest deer in the world that really gets me cranked up. So. 
for the foreseeable so, future, I think I'm going to be doing it. <laughs> so, so basically, you're a man made of moose. Well, you could say that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm about a tenth of the size, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I yeah. just really, uh, you know, I've been, I've had a moose pin me down behind a willow at at uh, ten yards before, and ended up not getting a shot, but just. Uh, I can't describe the feeling of having a moose just stare you down at 10 yards with the only thing in between you and him is a, uh, you know, some, some willow brush. And, you know, it's, it gets your heart going pretty good. I'll tell you that. Uh, that moose meat is amazing. I've actually, uh, my stepdad's took in a couple of them and it, it's awesome table fare. And I imagine uh, with the size of these uh, moose, you're, you're chewing on a lot of moose meat. I actually had uh, moose steaks last night, believe it or not. So, <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, it is phenomenal to your point. And, um, you know, we definitely prize, you know, that's, that's prized meat. So when we get one down, it's, it's great to be able to share it with a hunting partner and, and bring a lot home to family and friends. And, uh, I haven't had anyone that's, um, you know, as long as it's taken care of appropriately in the field, uh, I haven't had anyone that just hasn't absolutely loved moose meat. Well, why don't you kind of walk us through how, uh, you know, a year goes for you as far as uh, logistics and getting up into Alaska and, um, you know, maybe share kind of the when you started going to the present day of uh, hunting these giant monster deer, the moose. Yeah, I would say, you know, the the thing when you're doing a do-it-yourself hunt, there is a lot of preparation and, you know, I guess a lot of it is making sure you've got the right gear. And because once you get up there, you know, you've, you've got what you've got and you've got to, you've got to survive. So one of the things, you know, with the bush planes and we fly in in, in a uh, super cub. And so the weight restrictions are pretty tight. So some of our gear or most of our gear is actually fairly lightweight. Um, but you know, it's it's one of those things where you and, and I'm I've already done it this year where you're I'm pretty pretty well geared up now. But you know, booking hotels in advance, getting the rental cars, you know, all that stuff. Every everything's a, you know a part of the process, and that's what I really enjoy from sitting sitting in my den making arrows to being up in Alaska. You know, basically doing finishing touch on grocery shopping and licenses and that to get into the bush but um you know some of the some of the gear that i really enjoy is i i actually take a a, a teepee it's still nylon teepee mine's from titanium goat and there's other brands out there but basically just it gives you a lot of space but it's super lightweight and uh, you know windproof and waterproof so pretty good shelter you run a stove in that teepee yeah, I have a titanium goat uh, Wi-Fi stove, and I don't run it every day, you know, because I like it actually being cool at night. But, uh, you know, if you get a bunch of rain, which we have had rain in, you know, several years, um, then it's a great thing to basically be able to build a fire in the stove and dry out gear. So I, I do take one up there, and, it, you know, they fold down to the size of a laptop. So it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty convenient, but they, they really come in handy when it gets wet. That's way cool. And so for guys that may not, that are listening, that may not know, like these stoves are, mm-hmm. it's kind of, like you said, it's like a real small stove and you're just putting kind of kindling and just kind of 
it's a short burning, quick warmth type of uh, thing, I would imagine. Yeah, it really, you can't fit, put big logs or anything in it. So they're really, you know, they're really lightweight titanium. Uh, but, you know, if you put 10 good sticks of kindling in there, that thing will roast you out of the teepee. I remember my hunting partner and I, one year we were laying in the teepee and, and it was a cold night. And so we did start a fire and uh, I said, hey, let's, let's load it up. And after a while, you could just see the pipe, just a bright orange. And we're basically coming out of our sleeping bags. It was so hot in there. But, uh, you know, they, they do a great job. And, you know, they, like I said, a great way to dry out gear and keep you warm if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you get the chills. Now, you guys are flying in. Are you having to backpack a ways to where you put your base camp and as far as like, you know, sleeping bags and sleeping pads and stuff, what does that kind of gear look like for you guys? Yeah. So basically uh, I do a drop camp. So fly right in the airstrips right where we're going to hunt. So, you know, there's nothing else there other than it's, I'm hunting a, a river drainage and basically land right on the side of the river and set up camp. And so, you know, we don't have to um, don't have to take our gear too far. Basically, just take it across the river, and uh, and set up our you know teepees. But um, in terms of sleeping bag, that's the one thing I um, I use. I've got a um, a Cabela's Alaskan Guide sleeping bag, and there's a lot lighter ones out there. But I've used that one for years, and it's really comfortable and uh, gives me a good night's rest. The other thing piece of gear that I really would recommend when you're spending, you know, 12 to 14 days out in the bush is I purchased a, uh, a luxury light cot. I think Thermarest bought about now, but just being able to get off the ground, you know, really makes a big difference. And then I use an X-Ped uh, down mat. Um, so that combination between the cot, the mat, and the sleeping bag really helps you get a great night's sleep. And when you're hunting moose and you're up all day and, and then, eventually hoping to pack one out that that uh, setup comes in handy wow that's that sounds sounds very comfortable um so wh- while we're uh speaking on gear you know is there any other gear that seems to be crucial to uh make this happen and well one you know having good optics is really important because my favorite technique is to actually get elevation and sit on the hillside and then glass the uh the river bottom and then, you know, I don't, I don't use a spotting scope. You really don't need to because it's just like a big natural funnel the river is. But I use uh, 10 by 42 Swarovskis and, um, you know, having good glass, I would, I would definitely recommend. The other, the other thing in terms of, you know, basically we're eating Mountain House freeze-dried food, but having a jet boil um, is really a very efficient way to boil your water for your food. So I'd recommend that as well. Is there any uh, fishing that's going on or is it just all, uh, all in on moose while you're there? There are a few grayling holes, but my, my focus is uh, basically on, you know, hunting moose. So right. um, like I hunt with Monty Browning now and he, he he will take a uh, a reel up there and but uh predominantly our focus is on moose hunting totally so is it pretty boggy like are you having to wear waders most of the time or what's your what's your outer wear um look like 
Yeah. So for me, uh, you know, the foot gear or, you know, the footwear is really interesting. So where we're at there, there are boggy areas, but for the most part, you basically are on pretty solid ground. Um, and you basically just have to worry about crossing the river. So what I've used, I've used Schnee's, um, as a primary hunting boot, but what I'm using right now is actually it's a uh, Cabela's instinct lockdown boot. And it's, a, it's essentially like a hiking boot that has an integrated gaiter. And so you get really good ankle support, but you also have, you know, waterproof protection up to your knees. So that's what I've been using lately to cross the river where it's above my knees. I'll, I'll use wiggy waders that just basically slip over your boots and uh, and they're super lightweight. You just take them off, and they dry real quick, and you just throw them in your pack. So, you know, I'm up there with Monty Browning. He likes wearing hip boots, so it's all personal preference. But for me, the, the Cabela's Instinct lockdown boots are kind of a ticket right now. Well, that sounds pretty cool with those wiggy waders. I haven't heard of those. What do those weigh, like a couple pounds or? Oh, no, no, they're super lightweight. I mean, they're they're like a nylon. I mean, they've. I don't know the exact weight, but I mean, it'd be, it'd definitely be, you know, maybe a half a pound. I mean, it's nothing. I mean, they're wow. just super lightweight. The guy makes them out of Colorado. Um, okay. And again, that's after you, after, you know, 12 days of crossing the river, every once in a while, you'll get, you know, a little tear in the nylon on the bottom. But, um, you know, to me, they're super lightweight and they provide the functionality I need for a hunt. Uh, sounds like something I need to add to my repertoire for elk hunting. I have to cross rivers to get into some spots sometimes. Uh, yeah, I think you, I'd definitely check them out. They're super lightweight, yeah, so that yeah. really helps. It's always a pain to take your boots and your pants off and get down to your underwear to cross a river and then get your <laughs> stuff back on. <laughs> yeah, so, I've done that before, but I'd recommend yeah. the wiggy waders. Yeah, for sure. And so you mentioned uh, you're hunting with Monty Browning. I mean, that's... That guy is a living legend. Uh, I, I can only imagine the stuff that uh, you have learned from him. Oh yeah, I mean he's, I mean he's, he's a real stud for sure. And I mean the thing is, when you're hunting with Monty, you got to be careful because that guy will get you killed. I mean he loves <laughs> adventure, and if you know if there's uh, the threat of death, he he chases it. So it's uh, now he's a great guy, and he loves to cook. That's one thing. Normally I lose weight on my uh, moose hunting trips but when i'm up there with monty i actually gain weight so you've changed uh hunting partners several times as these adventures have uh, from year to year or? yeah i actually started out in 2008 with a buddy that i met um he's from southeast ohio i actually met him on a caribou hunt at mckay lake in the northwest territories and just we became really good friends and his name's kevin dill so we hunted together up there from 2008 to 2014. And then in 2015, Kevin wasn't sure he wanted to go or was going to be able to go. So I uh, asked a friend, Brian Bowling from Oklahoma. And then, uh, and then I've hunted with Monty the last three years. And Monty, you know, like I said before, Monty and Bob, we were hunting in the same general area, but they would actually drop their gear six miles up river and then towards the end of the hunt, they would float back into my camp and then fly out of there, you know, fly back to town uh, with the with the bush plane. So anyway, now Monty's had enough of the uh, trying to navigate the river and the raft, and he's 
he's had a number of close calls. So, you know, when I, I asked him to hunt with me, he said, he said, yeah, I'm, I'm tired of that river. <laughs> and I uh, said, so I'm, I'm really concerned, Monty, that, you know, without the river and the threat of death, you're really going to get bored, but we just, we just have a blast and he's a great guy and great guy to hunt with. And how old's Monty now? Monty's uh, 69 years old, but yeah. you'd never know it. I mean, that guy, that guy, if you get a moose down, he's, he's the first one jumping in and, and uh, tearing the moose apart and helping you pack out. So he's, uh, yeah, I, I hope I'm in the condition he's in when I'm 69. Wow, that's me too. I mean, that's kind of make all my life decisions on trying to stay fit for hunting in my 70s. It's the, the goal. Yeah, absolutely. He's a beast. So while while we're still on gear here, I know we don't usually talk about gear a lot, but these Alaska trips, you know, we've never done it, so kind of important. I think a lot of our listeners are dreaming of it too. But so what about your bow and arrow setup? You know, a big thousand pound plus animal, or uh, you shooting heavy weight? What's your arrow setup and your broadheads? Maybe we go over that before we get onto the actual hunting. Yeah, sure. I. Uh... I love having a longbow in Alaska. It's just, you know, I love recurves too, but for Alaska, I take a takedown longbow. And I've had, uh, I've used three different ones up there on my trips. I've used the uh, Caribou Featherhorn, the Northern Mist uh, Baraga, and then the Taltine Stick Flinger. And all our great bows, and, and there's a lot of great bows out there, but uh, those are the ones I've used. I um, They range from 60 to 62 pounds, so not super heavyweight. And I'm not a big guy, so um, you know, so I'm not going to do the 70 or 75 pounds. And what I found is you really don't need to. Um, in terms of arrows, I really uh, I love wood arrows. I just love the romance of the wood and and uh, the look of it. So I use Sherwood Douglas fir shafts. Yeah, they're great shafts. I mean, those guys do a great job, and I've never had a problem with uh, consistency. So they're kind of my go-to shaft and. And in fact, uh, last week I just called the guys up and ordered a couple more dozen shafts. So they should be showing up any day here. But uh, total weight of the shafts with, I use a 145 grain Eclipse single blade broadhead. So total weight ends up being about 700 to 750 grains. Nice. No problems with penetration. Have you hit ribs on the entry? And like what kind of penetration are you getting with that setup? Yeah, I've actually had uh, pass-throughs, complete pass-throughs on two moose. Um, I've actually gone through the front rib of another moose and, you know, cracked the rib right in the center and uh, went to the other side. So, you know, that's, like I said, 60 to 62 pounds, but with, with those arrows, I'm getting great penetration. Perfect. Uh, so, yeah, we're happy to have you in the Sherwood camp. Me and Bob are big uh, proponents of Sherwood shafts. Um, those are our good buddies, uh, Bob, Steve, and Carson. So shout out to the Sherwood guys for sure. Um, yeah, talking to you, it sounds like you don't alter your setup. So if it's uh, whitetails to moose, you're running that 700-plus grain arrow, 60-plus um, pound bow. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I love, uh, I've got a number of bows, um, probably about 75 different bow and arrows. So I love trying different bows. And I've got, you know, recurves and long bows. I, um, I haven't actually, I've got some self bows, but haven't actually hunted with self bows yet. But uh, 
I do tend to use the same broadhead setup and, and um, you know, an arrow setup for my whitetails as I do for moose. So don't really mix it up from that standpoint. 75 bows in the collection, huh? <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, that's I'm just getting started. <laughs> you can never have so, enough bows, right? <laughs> are are your bows no. in the... Are your bows in the um, all in the sixty pound range for the most part, or do you ever shoot any lighter or heavier setups? And how do you select and choose uh, what bow you're going to hunt with with that that many bows in the in the collection? Well, the thing I it's just I go with my gut. So you know, and I was just at the you know as mentioned at the Compton Big Game Classic in Pittsburgh and ended up buying another bow from uh, Neil Bice of Bear Archery. So you know, I've got a lot of bear bows. Fred was a huge influence in my life, and I've just been a you know, lifetime fan of, of bear archery. But, you know, I've got uh, a number of different uh, custom bows, and it's just, you know, I'll, I'll buy a bow, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to hunt with that one this year, and it's it's really uh, as simple as that. So I just like mixing it up. I mean, there's so many great bows out there now that, um, you know, and, and great bows and great boyers that uh, – it's really nice to have that big of a selection, but I've so, got, uh, you know, a lot of my recurves will tend to be in the 50 to 55 pound range. Um, I would say most of my recurves are in that, in that poundage. Okay. So do you commit to like, when you just get this new bow in your hand, you say, I'm going to hunt with this one. Is that the bow you're going to shoot months in before you go on the hunt? Or is there kind of a process where you're jumping around a little bit or? Well, like I said, with Alaska, I like taking I like taking a longbow, so I'll, I'll shoot my longbows for Alaska. But a lot of times for um, for whitetail season, I'll I'll shoot a recurve. In fact, I had a good friend that that unfortunately passed away, and I um, I purchased one of his bows at a Compton at the Compton Rendezvous auction. And, uh, you know, it was a Neil Jacobson recurve. And so I actually hunted with that this fall. So I'll mix it up from the longbows to Alaska to, you know, recurve for whitetails. But, um, you know, I, I have never had a problem with switching back and forth from recurves to, to longbows. I know some other folks, you know, have quite a challenge making the switch, but for me, um, you know, it's never been an issue. So, you know, I, I will practice with both, you know, throughout the year. And then I'll go, you know, to Alaska with longbow and, and then in the later season hunting whitetails with, uh, with the recurve. What is it about Alaska that requires the longbow? Why do you like using that up there over your recurve? You know, I've used, uh, you know, when you're climbing, uh, climbing the mountains in Alaska, I've actually used my longbow as a walking stick. When I'm going across a river, I've, I've put it right at, down to the bottom. So I just find a a longbow is a little more durable in terms of not having to worry about twisting the limb, et cetera. And you can kind of throw it around and it's a little more forgiving in that rough country. So that's, that's why I lean towards a longbow for Alaska. I have taken up like a bear takedown as a backup bow, but, um, but I just love having a longbow. And, you know, when you're going through thick brush and all that, you know, it's not catching up, you know, you're not, you know, catching on the limb is nearly as much either. So okay. my preference for Alaska is longbow. Nice. Do you, do you always take a, a backup bow to Alaska and how many arrows are you packing on that trip? I basically take a, a, a dozen arrows 
and um, and then I typically do take a backup longbow. Um, sometimes when my Kevin Dill, when I was hunting with him, one of us would take a, a backup, you know, longbow, and we shot a pretty similar setup, so we could interchange if we had an issue with one of the bows. But you know, fortunately, I haven't ever had an issue where I had to need where I needed the backup bow, but, uh, it's always good to have one up there because if you do have an issue, you're kind of stuck. Our last, I don't know, five or six, seven guests have all been, all been talking about the longbow. It's got me thinking I'm, I might have to give it another go this year. I think you should give it a try. They're a lot of fun. <laughs> I have good days. <laughs> and bad days. Bow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm on it. I'm on it. We'll see how it goes. Uh, all right. Are you, uh, and I imagine you're like most, you know, guys, you're running a, uh, bow mounted quiver. Yeah. I, uh, the, the one I like to use in Alaska is uh, great Northern yep. and, uh, you know, that one works pretty well. I've got a, uh, Thunderhorn as well that I use on my tall times, but, um, yeah, I just love, you know, the, the great Northern is really light. It's, uh, really quiet. So, so and they make they make there. a strap on for the longbows, right? Is that what you use like a big rubber strap that loops around it? Yeah, exactly. You've got strap on the top and strap on the bottom, and nice. uh, you know it's really secure, so it doesn't move on you. And like I said, it's real lightweight, so it really, I mean, to me, it, it actually gives longbow a little more stabilization. But um, yeah, that's what I've been using, and really, really like it. Yeah, I'm. Me and Bob have been using Great Northern Quivers forever. Um, I, I have that wrap on on my longbow. That's that's how I like to how I like to roll for sure. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, sounds like uh, we got a pretty good idea of uh, what the gear looks like. Um, you're on this uh, float plane and you're landing and you're back in your spot. Maybe kind of just walk us through. On uh, it sounds like you're going for two weeks allowing yourself about two weeks in there kind of let us you know how how the hunt goes and maybe give us some hunting stories along the way sure yeah uh basically i'm just flying um i'm not going on a lake so i'm actually just flying in on uh, big tundra tires with the super cub right next to the river and um i usually you know i go up there with a, a hunting partner but we fly in separate so i typically uh, fly in first and then start getting camp set up. And then Monty will fly in, you know, right behind me. But uh, we basically spend the first day, since you can't hunt anyway, spend the first day setting up camp. And, um, you know, we've got the routine down pretty good now. So, you know, depending on what time we're actually flying in there, we get camp set up and, you know, cut up some firewood and, and basically just get ready for the next morning and get stuff organized and, get our gear around so that will be day one and then you know i love i love that first morning where you're waking up and you know you got that cool air and you're actually you know shouldering the the backpack and heading out and Miney and i we hunt separately and then meet back at night um so you get the the nice thing is is you get the solitude but you actually get to come back and share stories and you know, basically uh, share a camp with, with another great bow hunter. So I, I really enjoy that. My, um, I would say what we tend to do is go behind camp and we go in opposite directions, but we try to get elevation and just really keep our scent out of the river valley and basically just glass from a, you know, from a good glassing spot on the side of the hill behind camp. 
and then just let the animals dictate, you know, when you're going to make your move. So, you will you'll see animals moving through the valley and as you know, moose are pretty low, low density animals. So, I mean, there's been days where we don't see a moose, but um, it's nice when you start to see a pattern where they're moving up the river or down the river and you can actually go and make your move. Um, so I, I would say, you know, I shot my first moose in 2009 and that situation was, I was just basically on this knoll behind camp and I was doing some, uh, some cow calling and all of a sudden I heard this bull grunting and coming towards me. And, you know, you could, I couldn't see him because I was tucked behind some spruce, but I could hear him and I could tell he was getting closer. And it, I mean, what's really exciting is when they're just tearing up brush and you just hear brush snapping. And then all of a sudden you catch a glimpse of a palm of a big bull coming in. And uh, this this guy was pretty worked up. He was drooling. His eyes are kind of like rolling back in his head. And he's in that, what I call the trance, where he's just rocking his head back and forth. And, you know, it's a moment where, you know, you've almost got like a, a drag strip, lights flashing it, they're red, then they're getting yellow. <laughs> and then you're getting that green signal, like, okay, something's going to happen here. And I had this moose come in. And basically I got the quarter draw and he stopped and, uh, you know, every bow hunter has been there just willing that animal to take a couple more steps. And he turned and looked at me and I'm like, oh, this gig could, could be up. But fortunately he kept walking and uh, made the shot at 15 yards, put it right behind the shoulder and heard him run off and crash about 80 yards away. So that was my, that was my first moose. And, you know, that, that memory will n- be with me forever but um oh, man no wonder, it was pretty no exciting and yeah oh. yeah i mean it was one where it's kind of like it that is tough to beat and <laughs> you know i just encourage anybody to go up there to alaska to experience that because once that gets in your blood it's tough to it's tough not to go back i'm i'm drooling all over myself right now <laughs> Jeez, so like, do you guys limit so now that you got it down right i mean that's when the work begins i mean we've we've packed out elk and they're there enough work. I mean, I couldn't even imagine a moose. Are you guys limiting yourself to a certain distance from camp? Because, you know, like I've looked into these hunts and I've, I know the, the floating, the rivers can be kind of crowded and, but I also, you know, think of getting dropped off and just hunting the same mile Ridge for two weeks straight. will get kind of old too. Are you guys like, what's your distance you'll go from camp? Yeah, so that's that's a really good question because you know you got to respect the size of the moose and how much how far you want to pack it. But the furthest I've ever shot a a bull from from camp has been about a mile away, and so I'll tend to my gla- the glassing spot I'll tend to go to is about a half mile from camp. And um, trust me, after after packing out a moose over a mile um, in and there's enough, there's like the main river, but then you have all the river inlets that you've got to cross too. And I had to cross uh, three when we were uh, packing that bull out. But um, I would say a mile is the most I want to do it. I mean, you could do more, but the other thing you run into, and we have this every year, is when you get a moose down, it's a matter of time before a bear's showing up. And usually it's, you know, within two days. So, you know, you really have to be careful about, you know, being able to get that moose out of there and staying out of harm's way. But yeah, miles, the furthest I've 
you know, pack the moose out, and th- and that was enough. Trust so me. So once you guys get it back, um, you guys are obviously if you get one a mile away, you're making several trips. Once you get it back to the landing strip, are you then able to you know satellite text or call your pilot to see you come and pick it up if you got another week left for you know the next guy or how does that work? No, yeah, that's exactly how it works. So I, I do take a satellite phone up there primarily just to contact the pilot. You know, I tell my wife when I'm going up there, I'm like, if you hear from me, it's not a good thing. So, <laughs> you know, part of, part of why I love going to Alaska is the solitude and, uh, you know, getting away from my day job and, and the phones and all that. So, but if we do get a moose down, then we contact the pilot and, and let them know that, you know, we've got the moose back at the airstrip and, you know, hopefully his schedule can allow, allow him to get in there to get that meat out of there before we have bear issues. Yeah. I did lose a, an entire moose after we had packed it all the way back to, uh, to the airstrip in 2012. And um, so we actually, a bear came in. I mean, we basically got all the meat back. It was just getting dark called the pilot. He said, I'll be in first thing in the morning. So we didn't worry about putting up an electric fence or anything. And unfortunately that night a bear came in and basically ripped open every single bag. And so we called the uh, fishing game with the satellite phone and they said, well, you gotta, you gotta get it uh, packed up again, rebagged and get it flown out of there. So called the pilot said, Hey, come in tomorrow. We rebagged everything. And that night the bear got it again. And we ended up with uh one bag of meat, you know, that we ended up giving to a dog musher. So, I mean, it was just sickening after all that work and all that prime meat and uh, losing it to a bear. But, you know, a bear is just being a bear. And, uh, and so it was a, it was a tough lesson to learn. Are you putting an electric fence around your guys' camp? Do you do one of those fences? No, no, I haven't done that. I, uh, I've hunted Kodiak Island and uh, did a drop hunt there. And I, I did put it, uh, electric fence around the camp there but um you know i'd say for the most part where we're moose hunting we really haven't had issues with bears messing around with our with our tents we've definitely had them in camp when we've been up there i've been able to see the you know the prints of of uh, grizzly you know right in camp so they're they definitely come around but um you know fortunately they've been able or they've left camp alone so haven't really had that issue. Is it a draw tag to obtain a, uh, to be able to shoot a bear in, in the area that you're hunting? Uh, no, actually you need a, you need a guide. Uh, and oh, there's right, where, right. where I yeah, And where I'm, uh, where I'm bow hunting, there's not even a guide registered. So, I mean, what's nice about it is it's extremely remote. And um, so you don't see another person, you don't deal with, you know, people in rafts coming down the river in front of you. I mean, you, you, you're in solitude and I love that part about it, but that, that handles my next question, which was other hunters and hunting pressure. Um, and so uh, logistically, I imagine that, uh, probably, you know, through connections and uh, a lot of, uh, connections, I suppose. I mean, I imagine nowadays it's just hard to get away from people. Everybody wants to be on an adventure, yeah, I, I think that's, you know, you talked about elk hunting and, you know, I went out elk hunting in, right on the border of uh, Idaho and Montana, but, you know, ran into some other people and, you know, you, you know, all of us like to get away and basically feel that, 
feeling of solitude and being able to just basically kind of have the woods by yourself, so to speak. But yeah, we're fortunate to have a spot that is very isolated, that is very remote, and um, you don't have to deal with other hunting pressures. So, and the nice thing is you're hunting moose that basically, you know, in a lot of cases, you're the only humans they see, you know, all year. So it's, um, it's nice from that standpoint too. Yeah, that's super cool. So do you want to move us into, uh, moose number two? Yeah. So, uh, moose number two, actually it was in 2012. And, um, again, I was actually going to my glassing spot in the afternoon. So I, I met my buddy for lunch back at camp and then we were going back out for the evening hunt. And I was on my way to the glassing spot and I looked clear across the valley and the valley's about a half mile wide. And right at the very edge of the, the back edge, I, I saw this bedded bull. And um, it was one of those days where, you know, for Alaska, it was almost too warm, but it was windy, you know, sunny and you know, I just, I shot some videotape of this bedded bull and then I'm like, you know, that thing's quite a ways away. And, you know, the chances of me being able to get all the way back there and find that dude are pretty slim, but I'm like, here we go. So I bailed off the side of the hill, across the river, across two other inlets. And I, I had marked on this, on the opposite side of the valley, this, this really bright birch. So I had a little bit of a landmark in terms of which direction to head. And at about 80 yards, uh, fortunately, there's quite a bit of wind, so it was covering up the noise moving through the valley. But at 80 yards, all of a sudden, I saw this bull stand up. And uh, he, he was a nice, mature, wide bull. And uh, anyway, I was, I was grunting to him, and he was grunting back at me. But basically, we were both, you know, holding our position, and he wasn't coming to me, and I wasn't coming to him. And after about five minutes of that, I just decided to go for it and just started walking in on this dude. And um, anyway, got got to about got to about twenty yards, but he was he was head on, and didn't I really didn't have a shot. He was behind a bunch of willow brush, and all of a sudden he decided to make a move and come at me, and I knew it was game on. And it's it's one of the most exciting things where when they're that close, you know, something's going to happen and somebody's going to get hurt. But, uh, what they tend to do is they tend to come right at you. And so you're trying to work to the right or to the left to get a broadside shot and they just keep squaring off. But at 15 yards, he was actually tearing up brush and he rocked far enough to where he opened his chest and I was able to get an arrow, you know, in his chest and he ran off and, uh, again, went about 80 yards and, and crashed. So what was ironic about that bull was uh, my hunting partner the day before had spent the entire day with that same bull, ended up shooting it in the shoulder, didn't get, basically his broadhead went through the uh, the ridge bone in the shoulder. And uh, we had talked at night about, uh, you know, one in a million odds of seeing that bull again. And I, when I walked up on that bull, I saw where his broadhead um was basically lodged in the shoulder. So ended up killing the same bull. And I've actually got the, uh, the shoulder with his broadhead in it as a, as a souvenir, but, uh, <laughs> it was a, you know, it was about a 61 inch moose, really nice. He, he was a fighter. I mean, his, his whole body was, he was definitely in another fight. He had antler 
chips of another moose antler embedded in his palms and uh just just a real bruiser awesome wow so are there quite i mean are you seeing quite a few bulls running around in in the cow groups or i mean is it are, are they all pretty you know are they spread out um you know what kind of population is there um within a square mile you know, I don't know the stats on the population, but on a on a typical hunt, I would say um, maybe maybe see about uh, you know eight to ten different bulls. Uh, and a lot of times, like uh, this last year, I was I was videotaping where basically on my, what I call Monty's end of the end of the valley, I was seeing four big mature bulls that were together with a lone cow, with a lone cow. And, uh, Monty actually, when we met back at night, uh, I asked him how come he didn't go after him and he never even saw him. So when they're in those big spruce, you know, moose can move through there and you just don't see them. But, um, you know, I basically what I've seen is on, you get about one really good opportunity per year you know, to get, to get a moose down. So you've got to make the most of it. And the, a lot of times it just depends like early in the hunt, the, the bulls just aren't ready to, to fight yet. But, you know, as you get closer to the end of the hunt, they really start getting worked up and, and your odds actually increase of being able to, to, you know, basically provoke one to a fight and come on in. So it sounds like the timing, you're kind of going in that pre-rut time um so is that beginning of september or how how does that uh you know lay out i normally go in about the 8th of september and then we we stay i mean the season where we're at actually runs through the end of september but we basically uh come out about the 23rd or 24th and so you know now i've had it where on like in 2015 i shot my bull actually on day two but um but in terms of the rut, I, I agree with what you're saying. That's kind of a, what I'd call a pre-rut. And then towards the end of the month, you start getting into the major into the major rut. But it can happen any time. But I would say the bulls really start getting worked up towards the end. So similar to elk as far as the uh, rut goes and timing on the month of September, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. So awesome. when, when you, you know, you're kind of hiking up to that same mountain and, or hail your little glassing spot. When you see a bull wander through, I mean, do they just keep going? Like you don't see that bull the next two weeks? Like, is are I mean, they cover that much ground. Well, it's interesting. Like the the bull I shot in 2012, my buddy spent the whole day with him the day before, and he was he was hanging around the area. But then there's other bulls, like the four I saw on, on day one last year, where you know didn't see them again. So. It, you know, I would say their tendency is to basically just move up and down the uh, the river system, and you'll see them one day, and then they'll be gone the next. Um, in 2016, though, I had a bull that um, <clears throat> was basically had a cow. He had chased off a number of other smaller bulls, and he, w- he came out with his cow four days in a row, and I told Monty, I said, hey, if that guy comes out again, I may, I may make a move on him, and... Um, so that and that was the bull that was a mile away. But uh, I went down. He came out about an hour before dark. Uh, I bailed off the hill and snaked my way through. And fortunately, I uh, actually 
worked in and, and uh, was able to find the cow. And I'm looking for the big bull, but I didn't see him. And then all of a sudden I saw another moose and I started to make my way towards them. But this moose, this other moose was basically just a paddle horn that had seen this big guy, you know, run off before. And so I'm like, man, where's the, where's this big moose? And so I took a couple more steps and looked to my left and this big moose was just still bedded. And I just saw these big paddles sticking up and I'm like, all right, game's on. So I've got a uh, Mike Mitten made uh, basically a corrugated plastic antler for me. And it's got an image of a, a moose antler on it. So it looks pretty authentic. And I, <clears throat> I basically knocked an arrow took that uh took that antler and just started working my way right towards the bull and as soon as he saw that antler he got he got up and just started tearing up brush and started walking right towards me and uh he got about 30 yards away and again I'm trying to get broadside he's he's squaring off so I don't have a shot and all of a sudden he charged me I mean it basically like uh it, it wasn't a grunt it was like a roar where he just went <sighs> and just let out a bunch of air and came right at me. And I thought it was all over. It was like a bulldozer <laughs> coming at you. And uh, I thought, you know, literally what went through my mind is this is how I'm going to die right here. And fortunately, it was a bluff charge. He stopped at 20 yards, and then he started rocking again, and he turned enough, and I was able to get a shot into his chest. And he basically, I mean, I knew it was a good shot, and he just flinched, and he stood there. And then he charged again. And at 10 yards, he fortunately stopped and the arrow was doing his job and then he ran off. But, you know, after that, I mean, I don't know how you can beat that kind of excitement oh, when, man. you know, you think you're going to die twice. And um, then all of a sudden you've got, and that bull was, I think, uh, 62 some inches. So it was a good mature bull and, and, um, just a great memory. But uh, yeah, I thought I was, I thought I was toast that day. He, he he literally was getting ready to just run you down. Yeah, and uh, and when uh, Monty and I you know went back to you know pack them out and all that, I told him I didn't have any trees to get behind or anything, and you know it was just open brush area where he would where this cow was hanging out in these uh, in these willows, and so there just you know there wasn't anything to get get behind, and uh, thank goodness he. Uh, he decided to stop, but I, I thought I was dead meat. Wow. wow. Sounds insane. awesome. On a little side note here, yeah. um, we didn't cover this in the gear. I always like to ask guys, what do you use when, to waterproof your feathers? I know it rains and you're going through that brush up there. What do you use? Yeah, I actually uh, basically just use a little nylon uh, thing that I can, you know, if it's raining, a nylon thing that I basically, I got it from Fred Asbell, but it's just a nylon you know, protector that I can tie onto my quiver. Okay. And so that's worked out pretty good for me. Yeah, I've awesome. used the powder in that before, but I just don't like that tackiness on my on my fletching. So I, I just decided to cover them up. And then you've got some extra arrows back at camp that you can switch out, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, like I said, I take a dozen arrows up there and uh, typically only, you know, use one, maybe two, but, uh, I'd like to have some insurance back at camp. And so um, you, you've you taken how many how many bulls in Alaska? I've, uh, I've, I've killed five bull moose. And uh, the last three years, I've, I've, you know, killed a moose each year. So 
you know, it's, it's one of those things where I've been very fortunate and, you know, I just love hunting those majestic animals, but you know, the, I always go up there with mentality that I'm going to get it done. Knowing that the odds of actually it happening are really slim, but, uh, you know, I like being in that mental attitude where, you know, you're going up there thinking it's going to happen. And, uh, fortunately the last three years it, it has happened, but, uh, I know my time's do where I'm going to hit a streak of uh, going home empty-handed, but, you know, you never go empty-handed coming back from Alaska. And have your hunting partners had the success uh, that you've had? Well, uh, Kevin Bill's done, uh, I think he's killed uh, four bulls in Alaska, so he's had really good success. You know, I think Monty's killed two. Um, and so it's in Brian Bowling, when I went up with him, that was the first year we actually doubled. I ended up shooting a bull. Uh, and it's a pretty interesting story. Uh, I was coming back from, I was coming back into camp early because I forgot my wiggy waiter, so I couldn't actually cross the river. And I was scolding myself for making a kind of a rookie mistake. But I'm walking back to camp, and all of a sudden I see this bull right at the end of the runway making a rut pit. And he's just, you know, tearing stuff up. I'm like, I can't believe this. But he was across the river. And so, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't really cross the river unless I just wanted to go for it and, you know, basically not worry about getting everything wet. Um, but what I did is I started calling this, this bull and I got his attention and I worked my way down the hill towards the other edge of the river. And I wanted to call him to the other side. And, um, and I had, I had that uh, antler that was talking about so i basically put the antler up in a tree and started calling and just real aggressive bull grunts and and sure enough that bull just was getting worked up and started just making his way you know to the river's edge and he got to the river's edge and got behind the spruce and then stepped out and i shot and you know the shot i mean it was one of those where you're watching the arrow and you're waiting for that to connect and it just went right you know right underneath them and uh, and so I had to reload and shoot again, and, uh, and the second arrow hit him in the chest, and and he ran off. But um, but it ended up by, uh, after uh, the next day, mar- I marched it off, and it was a 35 yard shot, which is you know way longer than I shoot. I like it within 20 yards. But these animals are so big that they look they actually look closer than they are. But what was ironic is after I shot the bull, it ran off and I saw it go down. But, um, you know, I heard this, I heard this other bull, I heard raking, I heard grunting and I'm like, oh man, there's going to be a bullet, you know, another bull coming in. So I actually ran towards it and it ended up being my hunting partner, Brian Bolding. And, uh, he, he had seen the same thing with his bull basically making a rut pit and he was going after the same bull, <laughs> but, uh, he was a little behind me. So I had the advantage and already had the bull down. And then he actually, so that was day two. And then he actually shot a bull on day five. And that was the first time that, uh, you know, we've been in camp and both doubled down and, um, you know, hopefully Monty and I can make it happen this year where we can double down, but it's only happened once since 2008. And what kind of penetration did you get on that longer shot? Yeah, it was uh, it was one where I saw the uh, entire fletching disappear. It wasn't a complete pass through, so the back of the arrow was still inside the moose, but uh, but still really good penetration. 
Oh, that's well, awesome. awesome. That had to be an awesome pack job too. If it was right at the end of the landing strip, that's perfect. Well, I, I was, yeah, I was telling Brian and, and there was actually like a caribou trail that had been packed down, you know, right from the airstrip all the way to where the moose died. And so I told Brian, I'm like, Brian, you don't understand, you know, how lucky we are with this pack job. <laughs> and so we got, you know, we got my moose, you know, packed up and, and back to the airstrip, pilot came in, got it out of there. And then when Brian shot his, his wasn't really, his was about a half mile from camp. So it wasn't too terribly, you know, far of a pack job. But, you know, after packing out two moose, you're just tired. And I remember we were packing out Brian's last load and I was pick, I was packing up the gear and he was packing out the antlers. And I said, be careful, Brian, because those antlers will throw you off balance. He's like, nah, I've got this. So He's out, and all of a sudden I hear some noise, and all of a sudden I hear some screaming, and I look at Brian, and he's basically on his back like a turtle with the, uh, you know, had fallen over, stepped into a hole, and fell over, and couldn't get back up. So it was kind of funny. <laughs> so once your hunt partner, once you've got a bull down, are you now uh, calling and hunting with your hunting partner, or are you just kind of hanging out at camp, or how, how does that usually work for you guys logistically? Yeah, uh, so when I shot, you know, the moose in 2015 and Brian was going after his, I was actually basically going back to my spot because I'm like, okay, the carcass is right there. I've got a great visibility. And, you know, I'm either going to watch a grizzly come in or maybe get a crack at a, at a wolf. And actually that's so, so basically I let him continue to hunt in solitude. And then I would just, you know, was hoping to get some really good video footage of a grizzly coming in. And sure enough, I did. And that's when, I mean, I was filming this grizzly for probably, probably a half an hour. And that's when I wish a non-resident could hunt without a, uh, a guide in Alaska. Cause I mean, it was a perfect setup to be able to stalk in with a, with a grizzly being preoccupied on a moose carcass. And then, uh, you know, actually saw a wolf come in as well and i snuck within 35 yards of that and uh i don't know if he smelled me or what if the wind swirled but uh he basically just trotted off but i thought i was going to get a crack at that wolf on the moose carcass as well so are you seeing very many wolves and have you had uh any other opportunities on wolves yeah, uh, actually, the the area we're in is a predation zone, so um, the, uh, we see a lot of predators. I mean, bears every year, wolves every year, and uh, actually, in 2014, I was I was my buddy and I had said, hey, we if we get a moose down, it would be great to get close up footage of a grizzly coming in. So we actually took tree stands up there and. Um, and not not for moose hunting, but basically just to be able to shoot some video of a, of a grizzly close up. And so I put this uh, tree stand up in this area where I'd seen moose travel. And I was just sitting at it in the morning. And all of a sudden, I heard water splash. And I looked to my right, and here comes a grizzly just power, you know, doing a power walk down this inlet, coming right at my tree. And I get my video camera out, and I'm trying to shoot video, and I'm getting an error message. Well, what, what had happened is I had actually had my video camera on photo mode. So I wasn't getting any recording. And this grizzly bear is just coming closer and closer to my tree. 
he's walking behind me and I lost track of him. And I finally, you know, looked down and he's right at the base of my tree and the tree stand, I'd only put it up like 10 feet. So it wasn't very far away. And next thing I know, this grizzly's just basically on his hind legs with his paws on the, on the tree. And he's, he's looking at me and I'm like <laughs> one lunge and man, he's taking me out of this tree. So I switched to uh, bear spray and, um, you know, basically put the camera down, got the bear spray out. And when he saw that commotion actually ran off and uh, I'm like, you know, that day I thank God for tree stands because that bear was, that bear was coming in. But uh, the next day I wanted to hunt in that same area. And, um, but I knew that grizzly was probably still around. So I actually got up in the tree stand again. I was just doing, you know, moose calling and, and, uh, you know, one of the nice things about being in a tree stand is you can be in the valley, but you've got some elevation. So I was, I was moose calling and all of a sudden I heard splashing again and I'm thinking, all right, here, here comes that grizzly. So, you know, I actually picked up my video camera to get ready, get some footage. And all of a sudden I caught some black movement coming through the, through the spruce. So I actually thought it was a black bear. I picked up, uh, put the video camera down, picked up my bow and I could hear the animal moving, you know, closer to me. And then all of a sudden I caught another glimpse and out at seven yards popped out, uh, this black wolf. And I just instinctively just pulled back and, you know, released and the arrow went right through his chest and, uh, just sat there saying, you gotta be kidding me. I just shot a wolf with a longbow <laughs> and, wow. uh, just a really, really unique experience. And so, Anyway, got down and uh, it, it ran about 90 yards, but um, was able to recover the wolf. And, you know, it's just a, I mean, I, I remember walking up on the wolf and the one eye was still open. I could see that amber eye and it was just, it was, it was, you know, basically spooky almost. I mean, the hair on the back of my neck went up and uh, just walking up on this wolf killed with longbow was, uh, was pretty neat. Wow. That is spectacular. Holy moly. So uh, that was the, your third year hunting moose. Well, let's see. That was in 2014, and I, you know, so that was my sixth year. Sixth year. So okay. Should have been 2008. Yeah. Okay. But I've really, I've got a, uh, you know, I've got a full size mount of it, and it's pretty cool. I mean, it's people don't realize how big they are. In fact, I wanted to take it to the Compton Big Game Classic. And I couldn't fit it in the back of my SUV, you know, with the habitat and all that. So they're bigger yeah. than you think. How, how big, how much do you suppose he weighed? Uh, it was actually, believe it or not, it, was, it ended up being a female. But I want to say it was probably about 75, 80 pounds. I never weighed it, but that's yeah. what I would get. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. So uh, can we dive into a couple more of your moose, if you don't mind? Yeah, so I'm trying to think which ones we've covered. So we, we covered uh, the first one, 2012, um, 2015 was the one where Brian Bowley and I doubled down. And 16 actually was the one that was uh, that charged me. And then uh, last year, um, basically, I had a similar setup as uh, in 2017 that I did in 2016. So I was up in the, uh, you know, on, on my glassing spot, looking at the valley and about a half mile away, I saw a cow with a calf. And then there was a smaller bull that was harassing the, uh, the, the cow. And she was actually bawling when they're getting harassed by, by a bull. They don't want 
you know, they don't want to breed with, they will actually let out this ball. So it was doing that. And then all of a sudden I caught a glimpse of, you know, bigger moose back further in the brush. And um, that, I mean, when you've got that set up, if you can get in there and get, you know, kind of in that, in that zone, you're, you're, something's going to happen. So I knew it was a great setup. I built off the side of the hill, went across the river and just started working my way in there. And, and basically what, uh, you know, I was, I was just slowly picking my way through the, to the general area. And all of a sudden the cow and the calf busted and I didn't even see them. And they just took off there about 50 yards in front of me. And I'm thinking the bigger bull was going to basically follow them, but I could hear him still back in the brush, uh, tearing up stuff. And so it was, it was starting to, you know, get lower light conditions. And I'm like, well, if anything's going to happen, I'm going to have to make it happen. So I grabbed out the antler, you know, knocked an arrow and started working my way towards the, towards the bull. And I, I don't know where the smaller bull went, but he got out of there. And all of a sudden I caught the glimpse of the bigger bull, you know, basically just raking brush and breaking branches. And so I just stepped out, held up the antler and started working my way towards him. And immediately he just started rocking and coming right at me. And, uh, again, I just love that. I love that feeling of being on the ground. I'm 160 pounds, got a 1600 pound moose and we're, you know, we're getting ready to do battle, if you will. And, you know, like I said, somebody's going to get hurt when that, when that game's going on. So I started working my way to the right and he was coming at me and just, again, tough to get a broadside shot. And, um, so I kept working my way to the right. And this time I remember, uh, distinctively saying, okay, when you shoot, you better figure out which tree you want to get behind in case he decides to charge. And, uh, I, I finally, he came in at about 20 yards and I actually, he came through this opening and I shot and actually got a deflection on some willow brush and it went low. And I didn't know if I hit the animal, hit the moose low or just completely missed. As it turns out, I completely missed it. And then he, he kind of like stopped for a second, but then kept walking in at 15 yards, you know, hit him in the chest and, um, and it, he ran off. So again, just, uh, those close up encounters with those big moose is just something that I can't get enough of. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. I'm uh, like I said, I'm just sitting here trying to wipe the drool off me. I'm thinking, screw elk hunting. I'm ready to, <laughs> but, but well, they're legit- both great animals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, elk are just a lot more uh, available, and it seems like logistically, um, th- there could you could spend a lifetime, uh, you know, trying to figure out a way to get into a situation like you're in, where you have an area to hunt moose without the the pressure. Yeah, I mean that that's pretty. You know, it's getting harder and harder to find. You know, if you get closer to town, you get you know, and you're on the rivers, you'll get a lot of people you know, floating down and, and all that, but, um, you know, hopefully it will stay this way for a while. So, uh, so we can enjoy the solitude. Yeah, that's awesome. So when you're calling them, how many different, uh, vocalizations are you using? And are you like, you, are you got a megaphone made out of leather or what, what does that look like? Now what's really interesting is it's, it sounds a little weird, but what I use is basically a aviation, uh, camp. You know, so it's a plastic, you know, can of avi- aviation oil, and I basically have cut off the bottom. So I will actually use that for raking. It's unbelievable how good it sounds. 
and then I'll use that as kind of a megaphone for calling. So it's super lightweight, you know, and you can throw it in your pack super easy, and, and it works extremely well. So it looks a little funny. You've got this blue aviation can, but, uh, but it does the job. Yeah, but in terms of vocalization, pretty basic, just cow calling, which is more like a bawling or, uh, or a grunt uh, for acting like you're a bull moose. And I think the areas where we're at, since they're so remote, I mean, if, you, if you're calling like you're, you know, you sound like a bull moose grunting, and then you flash that antler, I mean, to that moose, you know, you're, you're a moose. And they get that locked into their brain. And then, you know, when they start tearing up stuff and start going into that trance stance, you know, you basically know you, you've, got them, you've got them hooked. And so that's when the that's when the fun begins. Wow, that's awesome. Um you got any like um you know suggestions as far as how a guy would even begin to put something like this together? Well, I think you know what I would do the the key is basically finding the right area and finding a pilot that will take you in. So I know there's a lot of commercial pilots like 40 mile air that I've heard good things about. And you may not be able to go moose hunting the first year. You know, you may set up a caribou trip and then build the relationship and work your way into a moose spot. But, uh, I mean, there's a number of pilots on the internet you can talk to. Um, but you know, that's, you got to start with, uh, if you've got a friend that's been up there before that's already got a pilot and that's a huge step forward. And then I'd just say, you know, chat with somebody else that's been up there in terms of, you know, what kind of gear you need and, and all that. And, and it's, it's like a, it's this big puzzle that you have to solve, but if you break it up into smaller pieces and just keep tackling them, here's the gear I need, here's the arrangements I need, here's the tags, all that, you know, you can, you can make it happen. So it seems like a big task at first, and there is a lot that goes into it, but it's, you know, at the end of the day, if you break it down, it's very doable. And Brian, Super. what's what's the cost? You know, that's not taking gear into consideration. Most guys, you know, say they have a ten or whatever, but just the cost. I know Alaska doubled their tags, I think, last year, the tag fees, but the cost between your tags, you know, flying down from flying up from the lower forty eight and the plane going in and out, like what's the overall cost, you know, ballpark for do it yourself? Yeah, I would say yeah, I, I would say you, you know, it depends on if you get a moose and you're bringing, you know, meat back and all that. But, and I'm not talking about any of the taxidermy costs here, yeah. but I would say you're looking at the five to $6,000 range. So you got, you know, say a thousand bucks for commercial flight. It may be less for you guys on the West Coast, but for us, it's about a thousand bucks. And then the bush plane, you know, with, with the moose is 25 to, to three grand. And then you've got your hotel, your rental car, you know, satellite phone, you know, groceries and stuff like that. So I'd say all in, you end up in the five to six thousand dollar range. Are are you using that uh, semi truck service that Mike Mitten had uh, talked about to get your moose back to the lower forty eight? No, I've looked at that, um, but what I do is I basically. Um, I fly meat back as check baggage and then I air, air freight some meat back. So that's what I end up doing. And then like if I get a moose, they'll air freight the, the meat and the, and the rack back. I've only uh, got a shoulder mount of one. The one that uh, 
basically was real close to the airstrip. I'm like, hey, if I want a full size shoulder mount, this is the time to do it. So, so we did it that year. But uh, you know, I just ended up air freighting it back, and um, you know, that's not cheap when you do it, but it's a it's a great memory for me now. And so, is it usually rule of thumbs about a third? So, if you shoot a, a 1,200 pound moose, you're looking at 400 pounds of meat. Is that? Yeah, we end up getting about, I would say, about 600 to 650 pounds of meat. You know, when wow. it's all said and done, so it's a lot of meat. And um, but you know, I end up bringing about 300 pounds back. Uh, my hunting partner will take you know meat as well, and then we'll donate the rest. You know, to the pilot always wants some. You know, and then there's some families in need in Alaska that they'll donate the rest to. So none of it, you know, all of it gets you know used and it's as we talked earlier phenomenal meat so when i come back you know i've got all of a sudden my family's showing up with uh with bags saying hey got any extra moose meat (laughs) yeah so and i i really actually really enjoy sharing it you know it's kind of like it's a really rewarding feeling knowing that you're providing such phenomenal meat yeah plenty to go around i shoot a blacktail and uh, my families have all got their hands out, and I'm like, "Well, I only got <laughs> 50 pounds of meat off this joker." So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, if I'm lucky. Um, so, you had alluded to taking separate planes in with your hunting partner. Could you, you know, touch on that and why that uh, works out? Yeah, it's just the way our pilot has it set up. We actually take a larger plane from Fairbanks into a kind of a halfway spot. And then he'll shuttle in, you know, with a super cub into camp. And basically, you know, you get the pilot yourself and then the, you know, your gears and the tail behind you. So, I mean, the first time I flew in a, in a super cub, it was pretty neat. I mean, I'm sitting in there and it's pretty tight and I could, with my elbows, push out the side of the plane. I mean, they're just fabric, so super lightweight. And uh, so basically he can only take one guy at a time into, into camp. So that's how we've got it set up. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And you sound like you take your video camera. Um, are you getting a lot of footage? Uh, are you you're just using the camera on your downtime? Yeah, basically, I'll take it up there and you know use it for glassing and or not. I don't use it for glassing, but when I'm up glassing, I'll you know I see a moose, I'll take my video camera out and take you know footage of it. But I would say when when I'm making my move in, into hunt mode, you know then then my focus focus is purely on you know trying to get it done with the moose and um, you know i'm not up there to produce a video or anything so i i basically just uh use it for personal entertainment but this last year i actually did put a you know i i went ahead and put a gopro on with that strap and um you know i've got that on on footage so it's pretty neat i had it was tilted up a little too high so i was getting too much light so again i'm amateur at that stuff but um but you get the general gist of what went down. Well, that's pretty cool to be able to go home and share some of that footage with your family, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I've got great footage of, you know, the grizzly coming into the to the moose carcass and basically jumping on the ribs. You can actually hear the ribs snap, you know, when he jumps on them and he's, you know, just diving into the goodies and, you know, coming out. So it's just some you know, priceless footage for me just to, to enjoy. I've got great footage of, you know, wolf sneaking into the carcass, you know, always looking behind it, looking for a bear, but, 
you know, just, you know, some really neat footage that, yeah, that most people don't have the privilege of uh, ever seeing. Awesome. So, Bob, do you got any closing that you want to? <clears throat> no, man. I mean, I think we covered the boost pretty good. It sounds awesome. I mean, part of what would draw me to that is just, you know, like like Alaska draws everybody, no people, but I like the fact, the simplicity of it, you know, how, I mean, I get the raft hunts, I get all that, but the, you know, you're just, you're hunting every morning, you're getting up and you're going and, and glass in your valley, you know, I mean, it sounds like it'd be pretty peaceful time and, and man, then once they're charging you, it's on, I, I, I'm in, I want to go. So thanks for, uh, <laughs> thanks for sharing that with us. And it kind of gives, gives our listeners a idea of the, you know, what the cost is for the do it yourself and, and what's involved if somebody does want to start making the trip up north. Yeah, well, I got one last question. It sounds like Monty Browning is uh, cooking some meals for you guys in camp. Uh, so it's not mount, Mountain House every night? Well, I mean, that's that's the great thing of having Monty. He, he loves to cook. And I've got great video footage of Monty cooking inner loins, you know, from from my uh, moose in 2016 and uh, yeah it's he he loves to cook and and uh so i mean as soon as we can get off mountain house the better but uh, it doesn't always <laughs> yeah. work out but uh when it does it's pretty special and you know with monty it's one of those things where you know you, you've got gear restrictions but he always figures out i don't know if it's how he packages stuff in small bundles but he gets more than his fair share of weight in the plane i can tell you that because you know we're we're you know he's packing in salads and and everything else too so yeah it's you know i'd say the main staples are like oatmeal in the morning and mountain house in the evening but uh money's always got some other goodies in his bag that he pulls out that i didn't know he had uh, it sounds like my kind of guy bringing the salads into the uh, back country. That's awesome. Well, yeah, we really appreciate uh, your time today, and uh, we're really hoping it works out where we uh, our paths cross uh, and we get to meet up with you in person. Yeah, that'd be great. Look forward to meeting you guys, and uh, hopefully you can make it to Compton, and, and uh, we can hook up and tell some more stories and maybe do some shooting. But I really appreciate what you guys are doing to promote traditional archery, so it's a different – you know, format that I think can reach, uh, reach some, the younger generation for sure. So thanks for what you do. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Sounds great guys. Thank you so much. Thanks Brian. All right. Take care. Yep. Bye. Once again, we'd like to thank the listeners. Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google play, leave us a five-star review. This is the last week to win the Bear Montana bow. Leave us a review. Go over and leave a review for the Byland podcast. Check us out on Instagram. And always, keep the wind in your face, pick a spot, and shoot straight. Bam. Get outside so I can